Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 201. So, as Stephen just said, episode 201, which means the air raid siren did not get this show canceled or me fired. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's the exact opposite. Yet. 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 Um, it did have it, the desired effect, though is everyone else's department's noisemakers have been silent since I brought that air raid siren in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one no one wants to be known as uh, also um, having sounds associated with the air raid siren. Yes, but I will say people really enjoy actually cranking it up. It's pretty funny. Wait, like were, were a lot of people doing it? Oh, yeah, like um, probably almost every other person at the fab has... has cranked it because a lot of times people will just show up and be like what is this and i'm like see that handle just hold it and just give it a crank as hard as you can because by the time they get going it's yeah. already got momentum spinning up and so yeah. it gets to its full loudness before they realize what they've done <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> but yeah, it's been I, pretty i'm good. sure i'm sure the leadership team absolutely loved you for that church was the first he church likes it a lot Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Actually, he was the one who spun it the longest. I think he spun it for like 30 seconds straight. Oh, wow. He totally went for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that, that project went really well. Um, pretty happy how that turned out. It's had the desired effect which I wanted, which was people realizing that the noisemakers that they, like the bell and the sail gong, are worthless. <laughs> things <laughs> parker is not a team player that's for damn sure <laughs> i want him a team player i gave my team a noisemaker it just Your team made everyone else sick of noisemakers now <laughs> um nice. so that's been good uh on the so last week i was talking about the badge power supply thing i was designing mm -hmm. we actually got it ordered um so we should have them in I think at this point, eight days, we should have them, eight business days, and be testing them. And if they work, if this design works, I'm going to post it publicly, um, probably through the podcast and then on my Longhorn Engineer website. And so that um, people can look at it. And I started working on the lithium battery version of like a badge system. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still looking for like an IC to use for it. I basically I picked a, a, a battery protection circuit already and then I picked um, I'm doing an 18650 so I have like a Keystone 18650 battery holder. Um, it'll also work with like you know um, gel packs the lithium flat packs. It'll work with those as well but uh, for testing it's easier just to use the 18650s. What, what is your uh, what is your test uh method just turn it on does it work oh pull power see how clean the power is um like for the other one yeah it's going to be cause it runs on uh runs on um uh triple a batteries um it the basically let it run down and see if throughout its entire the lifespan of the batteries if the power fluctuates too much because it has a switcher that's keeping it at 3.3 volts Making sure that we don't get too much ripple, stuff like that. You know, something that also might be worth doing is um, 
starting it with a heavy load mm-hmm. and seeing like how well the switcher actually ramps up, com- dumps into it. Yeah, ramps into yeah. a heavy load. Uh, we actually we've run into some issues with that with a product at work where uh, we we've we've made a device that has uh, a specific ramp up period, but it ramps up to a, a a decent amount of current. It's not like anything ridiculous. Well, there is one other manufacturer that makes a switch mode power supply for powering these things, these, this particular product, um, and in our case, we pulled just a little too much current right at the get-go and their switch mode power supply uh doesn't deliver enough current right away and it goes into a uh oscillating state where it turns on and off and it's kind of been a thorn in our sides because they they don't uh, the company that manufactures a switch mode power supply is not allowing enough inrush current but a lot of our customers are trying to send rmas back on this it's like this is not necessarily our product's fault on in this case but is is it because your customers are using like this other supply as a third party thing yeah it's a third party we don't we don't supply the power supplies like that's something that is traditionally a third party thing you buy the product from us and you buy whatever supply you want to go with it mm-hmm. and our our product works with every supply on the market except for one and it, and sometimes it does even work with that one it just all depends on the on the um, inrush current and we've adjusted the firmware to make the inrush current ramp up slowly and things like that but i don't know it's a pain in the butt <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. We'll test that too, within reason of heavy load, which is like hundred. Well, I guess if you have a shitty add-on, which is two hundred fifty milliamps max. Exactly, so you should test plus, for that. Uh, yeah, so probably test it at the max what I had the mux at, which is half an amp. Yeah, basically, like, can you do a half amp load from the get go when you turn this thing on? Turn this uh, puppy on. Exactly. Yeah. Put whatever resistance that is directly on it, and just see if you can blast into that. Yep. And I've got a nice uh, load tester. That I can oh, that's with. right. You have the Reload Pro, right? Yeah, I have a Reload Pro, which is right, right there. In the, oh, in the, yeah, it is. Look at that. And then I, I have another one too. That's for um, uh, USB applications. Oh, okay. So it can pull five hundred milliamps pretty easy. Well, it can pull five amps at twenty volts. But it's like, oh, the, it's like USB-C. the plugs on it are designed for testing USB stuff. Oh, that's cool. Um, so yeah, um, the lithium battery version. I got to find a actual charging circuit for it now. And I'm looking for. I've been looking through the TI's catalog because TI makes tons of them. And I'm looking for like one that can handle USB Type C for power delivery because some of them have like that stuff is built into that front end. So. All you have to do is it that acts as the charger and the USB front end, which would be mm-hmm. kind of cool um, to handle it that way. Um, so hopefully next week I have more information about that. Like I've picked the circuit and have something designed maybe. Yeah. Um, and then on the brewery building, since we are one week closer to Christmas now. <laughs> hey, Parker's actually making a lot of... Bro- I've been getting brewery pictures all week long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got all the uh, stainless soldered. So all my brew pots, like the hot liquor tank, which is your heat exchanger for your mash tun. Um, and what you use, like heat up water that you need for like cleaning. And Yeah, and, uh, when, when we say hot liquor tank, it's literally a pot of hot water. Yes. I don't know why it's called a hot liquor tank, but it is. But the hot part makes sense. The liquor tank does not. 
Traditionally, the yeah, the hot water that's used specifically for brewing was called a liquor. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. Um, so I got all those fittings soldered. It is a pain in the nards to solder stainless. Like, <laughs> well, but it's, it's. I mean, is it? You're using it like you're torch brazing, basically, right? Yeah, you're torch brazing. Yeah. It, so, like, you would solder or braze um, copper pipes together with lead. Um, this case, it's not lead. You're using silver solder. It's like three to four percent silver, if I recall. And then you're using a really aggressive stainless flux. Um, that is that stuff is super aggressive on that stainless. Like it will actually oxidize the stainless if you let it sit too long. <laughs> it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, are you using the stuff that looks kind of like? clay it's like gray no deep. this is like a clear li- like a yellowish clear liquid oh okay i haven't seen that um, and it took a couple times the first time to get the solder right because you can't apply the torch directly to the joint because you just basically cook the flux off and then the flux turns all crusty and then uh you just won't get the flow like the, the you will not get any wicking action um so yeah, the trick is basically is, you know bolt everything together so it's all the t- the fits tight, mm. and then as you heat it up, you heat you heat the area around like the pot itself, really slowly, and then you just heat the fitting. It's what I found to work the best. Yeah, I've seen that before. Where well, okay, so most of the time the the pot itself is pretty thin gauge stuff, and yes. the fitting is. That, has a ton of mass on it. Yeah. So, so you cook the, the bejesus out of the fitting, and then you kind of, like, wipe around the pot. Yeah. That seems to work the best. It's funny, like, on the last fitting, I was I did a perfect one. <laughs> yeah, the very last <laughs> All one. All the yeah. other ones are, like, look like garbage compared to it. Compared to it. Um, that, and that's one of the hardest things, though, because uh, you, you really want that, that joint to have a good fillet and to, like, have smooth... Uh, smoothness all the way around because you don't want any voids or areas where bacteria can grow. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't really care too much about bacteria in these fittings. <laughs> um, well, that's the thing is, like, I'm going to be cleaning anything with a caustic material. And when it goes into the boil, everything will get boiled in that circuit. So it's like the the big thing with with... I think breweries pay more attention to it because they kind of have to from a, like, regulation standpoint and how clean everything has to be. But, like, so my brew pot, I didn't know this, is because I cleaned everything with just, like, star sand. Uh, not star sand. Um, um, PBW? Well, there's uh, OxyClean Free, which is almost like PBW. So PBW okay. is, like, a... PBW is powdered brewery wash. It's yeah. basically... It's TSP, but not as aggressive. Yeah. Well, it has TSP in it. Um, but it's got a... Uh, basically, OxyClean Free is almost just like it, except it's like 20th the price or something like that. Um, and so I was I just cleaned everything with that. And so in my brew pot... This is like story a long time ago. In my brew pot, there was a spigot, a, 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 a uh, pickup in it for the valve. And so that's how you drained out. Well, I never knew you could actually clean that thing. Oh, god! It's just like it just magnetically gets stuck to the inside of the inside of the pot. Because, you know, I had that really fancy brew pot. Right. 
Right. It was like a Blickman or a something Blickman. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really high-end pot. Because I thought I had to have a high-end brew pot, right? Right. Now it's like the cheapest shit I have with like soldered fittings on. <laughs> <laughs> but so it had a really fancy valve and all that stuff. And um, it was actually I was giving it away to one of my friends um, like a year ago. And I'm like, oh, I should probably clean it so it's nice and clean. So when they put it in their car, it's not all gross and stuff. And so I like I was cleaning it out and the inside that the, the little pickup fell off because I bumped it and it just came apart from its magnetic cla- uh, held on. I'm like, oh, huh. That's the first time it's ever been undone in like seven years. Uh, and it's it had been some through crust in there. A, a hundred brews or more. Yeah. yeah, it had some crust in there. But guess what? I never had an infected beer. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's part of the boil, right? If you're boiling yeah. the living bejesus out of it. Yeah, yeah, so it's like, hmm, I still made really good beer and that was in there. Now, I would clean it now if I knew about that. But I don't think... Like, if you were... If I, if I had to do this again, I would have just TIG welded those fittings. Yeah. And not, and not worried about sanitary TIG welds or whatever. Because it's a homebrew setup. Right, right, right. What's the worst that's going to happen? The, uh, I, I think the only thing that is... Um well, with stainless steel, you have to have uh, shielding gas on both sides of the stainless. Uh, if you're doing like in- internal pot welds or something like that, because you'll get the sugaring. Uh, if you ever see that the TIG weld sugaring on on the, they look terrible and they don't actually hold up very well. So, but it's on stainless the inside. You never see it. <laughs> I I think I would still uh, braze with solder just because it's it's easier to get it right. I don't know. It was a pain in the butt, and I knew I could probably lay down a bead of of weld. Like I almost busted out my like MIG wire weld and with my stainless re- uh, wheel. And oh yeah. Just went to town on that because it was so it was annoying the crap out of me. Like I'm like <laughs> this is so much harder than just like the MIG gun and just gluing the shit together. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, but I did solder them with silver solder. If I would do it again, I would do it with, I would tig, tig weld it. So you now you know you need to passivate all of your, uh, all of your stainless. It's one of the one of the first things you're supposed to do with those pots is put uh, uh, like a, a pretty hefty star sand. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're supposed to like oxidize it. Yeah, you build you build a, an yeah. oxide layer on the uh, stainless, and then. I think you're supposed, depending on how often you brew, you need to redo that on a regular basis. But I, I clean with star sand all the time when I brew. So it's like, I'm just rebuilding that oxide layer anyway. Yeah. So I can't remember exactly what it, like you have to put, basically you're, you're creating a certain pH level liquid that uh, comes in contact with the surface of the stainless and it creates an oxide layer. It'd I think you can fine. do a TSP too. I can't remember. I got a whole book. Uh, when I bought my first pot, and it was like this booklet of like, here's how to take care of your stainless. And I was like, oh, I thought it was stainless. I thought I didn't have to take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say I never did anything to my previous brewery setup, and it never it never deteriorated on me. So I, I made the mistake one time of um, not cleaning well enough my um, uh, wart chilling, my 50-plate wart chiller. And I got sticky sugar solution that I just crusted. You brought it over and it was nasty shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and what I ended day. up doing is I just I 
went on Amazon and I bought straight lye and I just filled it with with lye and made like a ridiculous solution and it was smoking like it was coming <laughs> coming out of the ports and stuff and that thing is super clean now. Yeah, that's actually one thing is uh, how I've set up my plate chiller is because uh, it's actually the first time I've ever had a plate chiller as well. And so what I was going to do with the, hot, the the plate chiller is the because I have a resort pump for the hot liquor tank. And that's always going to go through that plate chiller. And so when you're about when you're ready to cool down the, the wort, which is the cooked beer at this point, um, but for fermentation, um, and you have to cool that down from like boil temp, so 210 Celsius, uh, Fahrenheit, 100 Celsius, you have to cool it down to room temp, about 70 degrees Fahrenheit of what, like 20, what, that, 27, 20, 25, 4 or 5, something like that. Something like that. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put ice in the hot liquor tank, ice and water in the hot liquor tank, and, re- and that way that circuit is the cold side of the, of the chiller plate. And then on the hot side is the, the brew pot recirc, and that will just circulate in there. And hopefully there's an I, – I, I probably should calculate how much, like, heat I had to remove. Well, it's the same specific gravity, so it would just be – um, well, no, because there's a phase change in there too. I have to calculate that. I, I, I have to calculate how much ice I would need. Make sure I, the hot liquor tank is big enough. Because <laughs> the 15 gallon pot, and if you have five, five to ten gallons of wort, that's a, yeah, that's, yeah. I'm not going to do the calculation here. <laughs> this but, is how Parker's brain works. Yeah, this is just how my brain works right now. Yeah, in all that I've read. Um, you know, I'm sure there is there is like a, a limit to this, but in terms of in home brewing, there is really not a rate that's too fast for cooling. Like, correct. The yeah. the answer is go as fast as you fast possibly you can. can. Um, so yeah, whatever the coldest inlet to your plate chiller is, just do well, that. Well, yeah, it's it's. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about if I put if I fill my hot liquor tank up full of ice and water. And then you melted it all overflow. And I melted all away. <laughs> am I going to have enough? Basically, am I going to have enough cooling capacity with that hot liquor tank, or am I going to have to add more ice? Basically, you have to drain it and add more ice while I'm yeah. cooling down my wort. You know, I realized I just made a mistake. If you if you melt ice, uh, your water level actually goes down, right? Because ice yes, expands. Goes down. So so yeah, no, it's not going to overflow. It's just you might not have enough. That's what I'm worried about. You might not have enough coldness left over to cool anymore. Well, I I call that cooling capacity. (laughs) Sounded a lot more fancier than coldness. Come on, that's left. (laughs) Coldness is way cooler. (laughs) Yeah, Um, isn't it? uh, There is no such thing as cold. There's just a lack of heat. Lack of energy. Well, lack of energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. I got that all done. Um, the electrical box is almost complete. I'm going to try to finish it up tonight. Uh, I just got to wire up some pump switches. I open that thing up, and I'm like, oh, that's why I stopped working on it. Just, like, looking at it. Just it's like, a pain in the ass, right? Yeah. And um, so it's almost there, though. Pretty happy so far. You know, cabinet wiring, I think, is actually kind of fun. Doing, like, industrial cabinet wiring. There, there's something weirdly therapeutic about it. I mean, some of it's really just super monotonous and boring as hell, but uh, it can it can be super fun, uh, especially like when you get all 
ridiculously anal about it and you start looming all your wires and stuff to make it look really oh, pretty. I'm not even doing that. Oh, I like I that. I am That's doing fun. the little uh, ends on the furls. Ferals? Ferals, that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm doing those just because that makes it easier if you have to change it later. You're talking about the ferals on the end of wires for screw they, terminals and stuff. Yeah, that you crimp on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. And then um, I was we were, I was looking for RFOs for this week, and I found a article on the challenges of opening a brewery. And I think the actual title is... Uh, so you think you want to open a brewery, dot, dot, dot. So I was scrolling through it, and it says um, there's a joke in brewing that's 90% cleaning and 10% paperwork. And I'm like, that is 100% true. There's <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Actually, what's kind of funny, too, is even in home brewing, like... That's yeah, I'll, I'll spend I'll spend four or five hours brewing, but I will also like the week before I brew, I will spend time like jacking with my recipe and things like that. Yep, calculating everything out. Yeah, getting everything ready, and then yeah, cleaning. I'm hoping this this setup is either going to be an amazing achievement in home brewing technology or completely worthless. <laughs> so wait, does your electronic cabinet have like a big clean button where you just press that and it like auto cleans everything? No. Well, all my valves are manual. Yeah, okay. So, that would be cool. It would be really funny to have all these like complex controls that ha give you like all of these controls over individual things, but then one button that is the master button and it doesn't say brew, it just says clean. Clean. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll have to see how well the cleaning function of this thing works. I'm expecting it to be like it to take about 30 to 40 minutes to clean instead of several hours. If I can get down to that, I'll be pretty happy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Nice. Well, uh, hopefully, you know, here's to Parker getting it done before Christmas. We'll see. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's a mad run. It's going to be tight, right? <laughs> yeah, because it's like today it's like. I'm going to finish up the electrical box and then, like, make a list of other things I need to order to finish up, like, electrical stuff, like plugs and stuff. That yeah, I, I mean, you, you don't even have your two-bender yet, right? That, that's ordered, but it's it uh, got shipped on Monday. Oh, nice. Okay, so, so you'll have it maybe by the weekend? Yeah, I won't have any tubing, though. I haven't ordered that yet. I'm still <laughs> trying to shop around where Write I can get list. this. Yeah, well, I, I need to figure out how much tubing I need, so I need, like, I want to finish all the fittings on the pots, yeah. and then measure everything. Yeah, that's and then I'll move. start ben, uh, ordering tubing. And I think McMaster. I think that's so far the cheapest I've found the the stainless tubing. tubing? Yeah, because I can get it in like six foot sticks there. And it's a, it's like two dollars ish a foot. Hmm. Not cheap. No. I can get a I can get a roll of stainless really cheap, but I don't want to freaking unroll roll that thing and make it straight oh no that sounds awful yeah yeah but they do make tools that straighten tubing i don't know how well those work though sounds like another tool you need to buy <sighs> <laughs> i've already bought a freaking almost 500 dollars tool already <laughs> but at least it's going to be useful for other things Break you, you you're you're way in the hole when it comes to this brewing rig yes <laughs> You can even go farther back. It's like, huh, I bought a welder so I could weld this cart. <laughs> and that was like three, four years ago. Is that why you bought the welder? Uh, or one of the yeah, reasons? Yeah, actually, yeah. I've done a lot of other projects with it, but not the one I originally bought it for. 
I still need to um, build uh, my uh, welding cart for my welder. I bought my welder such that I could build a welding cart for it. And uh, that's usually how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I'm sort of crossing my fingers that maybe over Christmas break I'll have a little bit of time and maybe a little bit of extra cash to slap together um, a cart for my little cart. Welder. Yeah. 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 I need to build a proper cart for mine because I've got the uh, Harbor Freight jobby yeah which is uh whenever i have to go bring it from like in the garage to outside there's like a four foot step it has to go down oh geez i don't know how many more trips over that four inch gap it can take before (laughs) it just completely falls apart nice just thin sheet metal oh yeah see i want to make i want to make mine out of um one or one and a half inch box tubing well that's what i want to do it's just i haven't i i bought a 40 dollar cart instead yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. And it works great. If you just have to wheel it around a flat area, works great. The moment you have to make it go up or down a step, the whole thing, like, shudders and shakes as it moves. Sounds like sounds like a standard fare for Harbor Freight. Though I do have, like, a larger welder than it's designed for and, like, a ginormous gas tank on it. So You know, that's the, th- that's the thing about my welder that, that I'm, I, I would rather do custom on it is because I got a TIG welder uh, that is... Uh, the aspect ratio of the enclosure, it's very tall and thin. And uh, most of the welding carts you find are more for like the Hobarts and the yeah. uh, the Vulcans and things like that, where, or, you know, all those other guys, where they're way more stubby. And I've seen people put my uh, TIG welder on those carts. I'm like, ah, that just looks like it's going to fall over. Like, you hit. A, a, a twig on your garage floor and and it's all over, you know? Yep. <laughs> so All custom from here on out. Yes. <laughs> I mean, hell, you bought a welder so you could do custom stuff like that. Exactly. So. I did make my welding table, so that was nice. So what have you been up to, Steven? So I had a thought. I actually had this thought a while ago. Um when we were doing the useless design contest or the useless, uh, okay, whatever useless project, uh, par- the trophy that we created for that included a uh, seven-inch touchscreen for the Raspberry Pi, and we we had purchased multiple of these touchscreens, just basically one for me and one for Parker, uh, and and the one I had was mainly to get dimensions and to test fit when I was uh, machining the case. But uh, I, I ended up hanging on to the touchscreen, and I was like, you know, eventually one day I'm, I'm going to do something with this. Now, I'm not actually starting a new project here. I'm, I'm withholding <laughs> that. I'm I actually, was, like, looking at this, and I'm like, hmm, what are those other projects that we need to get done? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I'm prefacing this as in this is a project that one day would be really fun. And uh, I think it would be really fun because it might be something that could be fairly simple to do but uh it's just an idea that's been floating around i saw this this touch screen which is basically just a it just connects to a raspberry pi and bam you've got you've got a seven inch screen um it's sort of the right size for a retro gaming console like it it just everything seems kind of nice about it and the, the biggest thing is it's a flat screen and it's shallow so think of like a Nintendo Switch. You could do something Nintendo Switch-esque. I mean, it would, wouldn't be that thin for sure. But uh, that's the first thing that came into, uh, to my mind. And really, when it, with that idea, I started thinking about it. 
what if what if I wasn't or what if I was to approach making a handheld retro gaming console but without having any kind of electronic knowledge like what if I was just a machinist and I was like oh I can make a case for this but I want to make a retro gaming console and and so I kind of challenged myself the other day to just see like okay how easy would it be to actually make a retro gaming console assuming I have a mill or a 3d printer available and the enclosure wasn't a difficult thing what would it take and it's kind of cool to do that exercise in your head where it's like okay i don't get the luxury of designing my own pcb i have to just buy off the shelf stuff can you even pull this off and and surprisingly you can nowadays and uh, it's kind of cool to see that uh, hobby electronics uh have come a long ways especially since when when i was younger like hobby electronics meant you got a bag of parts and a breadboard or, or or you got like a schematic that just made some something that just made an awful buzzing sound or or you wound your own hey that means sales made a sale yeah right, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh to kind of just like visualize this okay so once again if if I was just a machinist and I knew really not much about electronics, like how could I go about making a retro gaming console? And and sort of the one stipulation I put on that is um, the the most amount of electronics I would allow myself to do is just solder wires together. So no like buying loose dip Components. sockets and and things like that or or like breadboard or, or perf board stuff soldering just like okay so if i if i buy a board and it has holes on the side i can solder that so this screen uh you can get it right off of a uh, adafruit for 80 bucks uh adafruit has a nice little power board that's called the power boost 1000 and it basically interfaces with lipo flat pack batteries uh, and I found a, a flat pack battery that is 2,500 milliamp hours and it's 15 bucks and it plugs right into this power boost 1000 board, which is 20 bucks. So that's uh, 35 bucks for your power section. Cool thing is it's, it charges over USB, but you can also utilize, uh, it does, uh, hot swapping. So if you want to just run your retro console off of USB, you just plug right into this board and uh, it'll power your Pi, and it'll power the screen. And then on top of that, you need a Raspberry Pi Zero. Or, I, get, I mean, you could do it with a regular Pi, but I was thinking more about um, uh, space constraints and things, and mm -hmm. the Pi Zero would be a better uh, solution in this case for that. Because you don't have any connectors on it. Right, and, and for my gaming purposes, um, my consoles of choice are the NES and the SNES and the Genesis and things like that, and maybe play something on a PlayStation or something like that emulator. Uh, so I don't need something with a lot of grunt. I basically just need it to be uh, a, capable of playing 16-bit console stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, Pi Zero is perfect for that. And uh, so, you know, you get your Pi Zero, you get, uh, uh, what is it, RetroPie on an SD card, and effectively you have the meat and potatoes there of everything. Sort of the, the only thing left well two things left really are your enclosure but like i said assuming that i had the capability to either 3d print one or machine one out of some material the only thing left is your inputs 
so your your buttons and your d-pad or your joystick or whatever your choice is and that's where i found the hang-up um they're at least in all the searching i found i didn't find something that really seemed to cure the the itch with that i mean there's there's plenty of options for inputs and buttons and things like that but nothing that really worked for what i was thinking because the the screen that i have that seven inch screen um i can't remember the width of it but it makes sense to hold it like a nintendo switch where you have your your uh some buttons on the left side of the screen and some on the right side which means that if you're not designing your own custom board for it you need a way to have your d-pad or your joystick on the left side of the screen and then you need input buttons on the right side of the screen and there just really isn't a lot of options out there for you know here's a board that interfaces with a raspberry pi that just has buttons and here's a board that is just a joystick so uh, that's kind of where I got my hang up and and I was a little bit disappointed because as I was going through it I was like yeah I can totally do this this is pretty straightforward and surprisingly well maybe even unsurprisingly there's a ton of people who have done this before and so the internet is just absolutely filled with people who are like here's how you accomplish these things but a lot of times it ends up just being you know somebody buys a super nintendo controller and then they take a hacksaw to it and they put the d-pad over on the one side and they're done that yeah 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 and and don't get me wrong that's that's totally fine but um totally fine if you're making like a one-off for fun in your basement and things but i was thinking more like uh it would be nice if you could just buy here's a, a pcb that has four buttons and contacts and it connects to your pi uh, so unfortunately, I think that's where the the concept of this project kind of fell off. Uh, I wish I wish that was available. I mean, there, there's plenty of boards I've found that are just buttons or just a joystick, but they still need to interface with some kind of logic chip, which kind of defeats the purpose of what I was saying earlier. Like you, uh, the 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 kind of game I was playing is you can't like the most electronics you could do is solder or plug things together. So. And Regardless, you didn't want to solder I, chips on boards. Exactly, exactly. Um, it still would be a really fun project to do. And after I priced it out, I think for about 150, and that includes an, an aluminum enclosure. I think for 150 bucks, you could make your own custom um, retro gaming console. Which, frankly, how incredible is that? That you can get like a full-on, like portable, rechargeable thing. And frankly, the most amount of design work you'd have to do is the enclosure <laughs> like everything mm -hmm. else is just like plug and play i don't know i think that's that's really fun I, I i do those kinds of exercises a lot actually where i'm like okay if i were to do something like this what would it take and how easily could i do it that was a that was a fun one but i don't i don't feel like going through and and um chopping up other people's pcbs for, and mm -hmm. then and then scraping away solder mask and soldering too raw copper so if i were to do this one i, I think what i would do uh, on a custom um i i would actually use all those parts that i talked about but uh, i think i would make a singular custom pcb that kind of surrounds the screen and it yep. has pads for the d-pad on the left and it would have multiple pads for your buttons on the right and maybe start and select and things beneath the screen and so mm -hmm. one board that's basically just uh, button contacts and things like that. But sort of defeats the 
the rule that I put at the beginning where you, you don't know how to design a PCB. <laughs> cool. Yeah, because you could probably buy a cheap controller and then pull off the uh, the membranes and the actual switches, uh, but the plastic buttons and parts. Yeah, a lot of people do that. Uh, and in fact, uh, I even found a place where you could buy new old stock buttons and L and R uh, shoulder buttons and things for a Game Boy Advance because people do that exactly that. You know, they, they, they design those into whatever fun little project they're doing. I've always wanted, because I, I used to make uh, portable consoles, like hacking up Nintendos and uh, Super Nintendos and Ataris and stuff like that. And um, looking back on it, I think what I would like to do is make a new one, but just in the kind of having done a lot of trips and stuff is having the controller buttons attached to the device I don't really care about that that much looking back on it like just being able to set up kind of like how the switch has that little flimsy kickstand kind of thing <laughs> yeah. just set it up and then it has a controller that's with it oh yeah 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 for sure and then that way you can use a, a real controller right that you would normally use for a console and then that little box is all the logic and stuff like that. You know, that, that, that's what I've actually done um, more recently. I take my Switch when I fly, and on flights, instead of using the, the Joy-Cons that connect to it, I'll, I'll bring a full-on controller. That's why. I And do. You, just, you just set it, <laughs> you set it on the little um, tray table that comes down, yep. and then you, know, you put your controller between your legs, and you're good to go. Yeah, the the only thing is that doesn't work for like if you're on the bus or a, a little right. harder in the car. Right. But most time when I'm like actually going to do like portable gaming, it's on an airplane or an airport. I'm not doing it in a car or on a bus or waiting around at the uh, at the bus stop or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I, the same with me. Like my my switch exists in two places. Under my TV or in an airplane, if I'm flying, like those are yeah. that's it. <laughs> so, uh, and another another thing though that that um, I found kind of I don't know a little bit annoying. I'm I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. There's lots of uh, DIY controllers, and even Adafruit sells like you know, button boards and things like that, that, that you could totally use to do exactly what you're talking about where, yeah, you make the brains and the screen is involved there. And then you just plug this controller in. But when it comes down to, um, the hacker and the hobbyist style controllers, man, most of the time they feel like crap and they're really, really small and they use tactile buttons for everything, and it's just, I don't know, like that just doesn't feel like a good controller that you can actually play a game on. Well, because those are off-shelf parts. Exactly, exactly. Like, actual membranes and contacts require custom boards and a, uh, and a you know, custom membrane. Well, right, but, but what, I'm, uh, what I'm going at is if, if you were to invest $150 and a good bit of your time into this, I would hate to like make a really, really nice thing and then have it feel like crap. Oh yeah, yeah you know, totally. uh, and and the tactile button thing is just like a zero starter for me. I wouldn't. No, I that. long time ago I found some buttons. I can't remember who made them, but they they are like membrane tack switches. Are, are they like dome switches or whatever? Kind of, but they're they're like the membrane switches that are underneath the controllers. Okay, except that they're in a six millimeter by six millimeter by three millimeter format. 
Well, that'd be cool. Do you have the uh, part number for that? No, it's, it's somewhere. So I actually started looking for like where because I made a post on a form ages ago with the part number. Oh, really? I find it. Oh, that's yeah. Funny. How'd you how'd you run into those? I think I was just searching on Mauser for them. Nice. So maybe maybe down the road that that'd be something that could be fun because especially if if I had just had all the parts available to me and all I had to do was machine the aluminum. I have that capability pretty easily. This seems like a project that could be done in an afternoon, you know, machine the case mm -hmm. and then just like basically glue everything together. And when I say glue, I mean like just connect it all together. I would, I would machine the case such that everything had um, either screwed in or went into slots or something like that. But, it, uh, but this doesn't seem like a project that is months and months of design work in fact it was sort of design like the the project was developed in my head as like it's supposed to not take a long time don't make this take a long time <laughs> yep yep so. it's actually a different uh design philosophy of thinking about you know your projects that way of okay what is the bare minimal or easiest to get satisfaction from right right exactly and and you, you, when you start doing stuff like that, you start looking at the the pre-built things like, okay, so this power boost circuit, I could design a power boost circuit or I could just buy a $20 off the shelf thing from Adafruit and plug a battery into it and then plug a USB and I'm done. Okay, check. Mm -hmm. That's how you would do this. And frankly, that 25 milliamp hour uh, or 2500 milliamp hour battery, I have no idea if that would would work for this well. I don't know if that's 30 minutes of gameplay or six hours of gameplay. I have zero clue. I just picked it because it was big. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did do a little bit of Googling. I still can't find it. I'll have to dig through my archives. They got, it's got to exist somewhere. I'll never know you, Viper. <laughs> yeah. And I made the post about it. Yeah. I guess I guess a decade later, remembering 12 random characters is it wasn't really high up on my priority list in my brain. <laughs> At the time, it probably was, though. Yes, you're probably right. <laughs> okay. All right, on to the RFO. RFO. Okay, this is one that's been a hot topic on Reddit and uh, Hacker News and a couple other different places. Deep PCB, pure AI-powered cloud-native printed circuit board routing. So this is a auto router that uses uh, deep learning to route your board. Um, and so it's got 24-hour turnaround. And th that's the thing, though. Is that I couldn't think of any boards that I could give this thing that I couldn't route in less than 24 hours. Oh, I've got some boards that would take longer than that. You should send them over to him. Well, I mean, a lot of these boards are client boards. I'm not just going to send random client boards out. I well, just, a, I just a finished a six-layer board the other day, or two days ago. It's a service you have to pay for. I think it only does two-layer boards right now. Oh, okay, yeah. I, but I, really, I was thinking about this, and I think we talked about this a couple podcasts ago, is... The hardest part of PCB routing isn't the routing generally. It's part placement. Oh yeah. If 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 you uh if you've done your homework ahead of time and you know your part placement, then the actual routing 
the connecting of the dots goes really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's like, how does the AI know that that's a differential pair, unless you told it? It it what this is is it's just um, auto routing with more steps, right? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> no, frankly, it I is. Know. I mean, okay, so yeah, it, it can hold the title of uh, AI, but I mean, how is that different? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Is a series of if loops different from an AI? <laughs> if I see pizza, I will eat. But it's neural. <laughs> I, yeah, my biggest problem is, like, how do you define differential nets stuff like that like stuff that you know as the designer of the board that these things need to be routed this way because of the signals crossing them i bet you more high-end eda tools you can put that stuff in um because i think there are some eda tools out there that like cadence the ones that we complain about a lot that you can actually like simulation in it oh like pc EMC pcb simulation. level simulation yeah yeah so you would need to know, like, oh, that's going to have a 500 megahertz clock on it or whatever. Right. You know, the the one thing about it is I I this, so the website for this is deeppcb. That's D-E-E-P-P-C-B dot A-I. And, um, yeah, sure, it's a beta version, but they don't have any pictures of, like, an actual routed board. So does it just look like auto routing that's just done in 24 hours? I don't know. I would I would love to see what uh, what actually happens here. Hmm. I'm looking at their FAQ page. What do you know about hardware? That's a question. <laughs> what do you know about hardware? So what do you know about hardware? Uh, we have significant domain expertise in hardware and electronic design automation. Several of our team members have worked many years in companies such as ST Micro, NXP, Dialog, Sagem, etc. We believe this is an exciting time to be working on PCB design automation, and because we have both AI and hardware expertise, we could be well positioned to do so. I don't know, it'd be fun. I would love to put a board in there and just see what comes out. See what comes out. It looks like you need KeyCAD though. Right. It's it's it, this is only yeah. for KeyCAD, right? Yeah, it's KeyCAD currently. Oh, there's a launch video. Oh, launch okay. Video. So in this video they actually show a lot in a lot more um, depth. Wow, it's a it's an hour long. An hour long video? Yeah, an hour-long video about InstaDeep. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, we'll have to see what happens with it. Cool. Will it take our jobs? <laughs> so Actually, routing shouldn't be a big part of your job. Hey, speak for yourself, man. I don't know if I can click a button and it routes for me, because that's just tedious work at this point. I really enjoy routing. I, I would rather routing be a, a majority of my job. I'm the exact opposite. I'd rather do schematic and then do placement and be like, take it from here. Oh, I, I like the puzzle aspect. Like I was saying, oh. I, I did a six-layer board the other day. That was just, it, it was fun. I uh, just, you, I don't get to do those super often. So being able to like reconfigure my mind to think about it in six layers is, I, I like that. 
Now, I just I I think from a engineering perspective, it's not a very useful use of an engineer's time. Routing a board? Yeah. Huh. Okay. I, I in in my opinion, routing a board is just as important as the schematic side of things in yeah, terms sure. of getting the end result that you want. Sure. That's why I say placement, and then after placement, it's like shoot a auto mo, most of my designs like my placement is that good then auto router could probably just barf it out perfect <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great i mean you've seen a lot of my designs so yep so uh the, on this uh this next rfo this is actually something i ran into and it's a this is a pretty quick one but um it's worth mentioning because uh, it kind of caught me off guard a little bit Apparently, not all PCB manufacturers are the same. Dun, dun, dun. No, what, what I mean by that is I, I actually... <laughs> I was about to say, and? <laughs> well, no, no, I ordered a board the other day, um, and uh, I went for black max, mask on it. And on this board, I had uh, multiple areas that have uh, 6 mil clearance, which 6 mil for um, most of the boards we do... That's low, but for this particular board, that was fine, and we've we've done six mil clearance uh, plenty of times. But apparently, our PCB manufacturer barfed on that and complained about it because with black hmm. solder mask from them, they can't hold six mil, but they can with green. Uh, Interesting. And the same with white, they can't hold six mil on white. Uh, so for their high tolerance stuff green is your is your color so just you know that's something to just keep in mind frankly i had not run into that before this is the first I've time i've never even heard of that either uh, and and the thing is i know for a fact that's not the case of all pcb manufacturers so before you start going making you know multicolored all kinds of wacko boards know that there might be some extra uh um criteria that you need to know before doing that and it never hurts to ask your pcb manufacturer Yep. Um, or just find another PCB manufacturer because there's like eight zillion of them out there. <laughs> right. But I mean, if you already have an established. Uh, if you have an established well, contact, sure. Yeah. Right. And a relationship and pricing and things like that. Uh, but frankly, I didn't know that. And, and I would have probably changed things around. Um, so what do you have to do? Uh, th these are all prototype boards. So there's, there's no problem with them being green. So I just okay. went with green, but it was just it was kind of a um, a little bit of a shock in a way because wait I thought I thought we could do black, but no worries. Yeah. Hmm. I might have I've to move some before. things around if uh, if this ends up going to production. Um, which I mean that's the goal. This is prototype number two. The first time around I did green and there was no issues. Second time around I, I asked for black. Now there's issues. So is that is that six mil in between like pads for like an SMT part? Uh like TQFP? Yes, yeah. Okay. Which which that's tight. Yeah, and yeah. and I mean some manufacturers are just going to complain about that as a whole with any color. Yeah. You know. But if your stencil is good enough, you don't for your paste you won't have to worry about it. No, it's more about the PCB manufacturer's ability to place mask in between 6 yeah. mil stuff. Some some um, manufacturers don't like that. That's a little too tight. I wonder if it's with their AOI, their alignment. Hmm, yeah, that's a good point. Instead, instead of it actually being a physical thing with the... Eh, it could be the paces or the that LPI liquid solder mask is, is thicker or thinner than the green. I actually, or it could just be the 
AOI can't pick up the white and black as well as the green. It's like calibrated for the green. We do have issues for sure with different colors in our pick and place machine. Uh, green just works. It works really well, yep. but but other colors, especially white, makes um, pad detection kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, we I, had that with our old uh, GSM was like that. It was really bad with anything but green. Oh, especially yellow. I remember yellow was awful. Yeah, yellow machine. was bad. And then, then we got a Micronic, and that was okay. But then our new Micronic that we got has got a 4K image sensor for it. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, it... it it can pick up whatever. So, but yeah, I remember in the the GSM, like if you had like the light on the other side of the building on, it would affect it because <laughs> it would like put a glare on the board. Yep, yep. The uh, so. the machine we have right now, it's a Samsung. It has um, inner and outer LED rings, so you can shine light at different angles on your part and um you can actually set up the lights to shine specifically for specific components in specific applications sometimes that's what you have to do you know mm-hmm. so just depends especially like weird odd shaped surface mount switches those are the worst Espe- mm-hmm. uh, uh, when they don't have good contrast between the pins and the body of the switch it's game over they're really hard to detect yep yeah really hard to detect Cool. So yeah, keep keep uh, keep that in mind. Like every little button or every little thing that you uh, mess with on your uh, on your PCB could have an impact on could it even be yields? Built? Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and then this last uh, RFO was just something goofy I found when we were searching for RFOs. I've titled this: "Has the water analogy gone too far?" Basically, so what is the water analogy? Well, okay. You, uh, Effectively, everyone who goes through Electronics 101 learns about voltage and current. In my classes, we didn't do this. You didn't do the water analogy? You you brought this up to me when you were at the fab, and I, ha- I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Freaking everyone does the water analogy where current is the flow of water and voltage is pressure in a pipe, basically. No. No? It doesn't ring a bell? UT didn't do that? Oh, UT's We didn't weird. do it. Uh, so I found this one, uh, this website don't even remember where I found it. But uh, basically they were suggesting, uh, thinking of the water analogy as a little bit more in-depth, where they're almost thinking of electronic components as appliances or things you would find in your bathroom. <laughs> water usage depli- water usage devices. <laughs> so, like, they're showing, they're showing the whole, okay, so if you restrict a pipe, it's kind of like a resistor or whatnot. But then they transform this idea from... Uh, water pipes into schematic symbols but there's schematic schematic symbols for uh pipes that are called or i'm sorry for resistors called pipes but then they also have a potentiometer that's a shower and a (laughs) fixed resistor that's a toilet (laughs) yeah a switch is a toilet yeah well yeah basically a switch is a toilet right yeah you switch it on but it still has some water resistance in it Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, okay, eventually you're going too far with the water analogy. And I think this is a great example of going too far. Although I do like, because later in the um, article, they they discuss the toilet as being digital because it only has two states. And the sh- on and off. Right, on and off in the shower is analog because you get to choose any any bit in between there. But, but uh, 
eventually you just need to say like, okay, well, we're done with the water thing. Just start learning electronics. Yeah. So who uses like the pressure regulation on their shower at all? Uh, I just turn it freaking full blast and just adjust the temperature. Yeah, I don't know. You're right. I don't know. Like, does anyone just like leak out their shower? I don't know. Hmm. Let us know in Slack. Does you does anyone shower or even have that capability? <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, you're right. It's just temperature control, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things when, when my wife and I were searching for our house, we were very interested in the water pressure because no one likes taking a weak shower, you know? Oh, no, no. I no. want it to be hot enough that it feels like it's, like, pulling my skin off and it, like, has to be, like, <laughs> pounding you on the back. Like, that's a shower. <laughs> Yeah, that I guess. What is that? Low resistance. Low resistance. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's probably going to wrap that up. We're right about an yeah, hour. Yeah, I think it's a wrap for this episode. Okay. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig, and Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven know. Tweet us at MacFab or at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you amazing community, we have over 400 people in there now that are engineers just like you. If you're not subscribed to this podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us on iTunes as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.